Hello and welcome to episode number 12 of Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, I chat with a true creative renaissance man, Roberto Mighty. And aside from possessing one of the coolest monikers I've heard, Roberto Mighty is a filmmaker, TV host and producer, multimedia artist and educator. He's also an editor, a cinematographer, and an FAA certified drone pilot. His critically acclaimed projects garner national funding and extensive press coverage. Roberto is currently producing and hosting 26 half-hour episodes of two new original public TV series, World's Greatest Cemeteries and Getting Dot Older. Each series will premiere in the fall of 2021, and both series employ engaging storytelling to celebrate diversity and inclusiveness. Roberto's most recent documentary, Legacy of Love, about Martin Luther King Jr.'s and Coretta Scott's 1950s romance, premiered on Boston's GBH public television station in August. It will be distributed nationally to other public television stations throughout 2021. Here is the trailer. Before Washington, there was Boston. For the first time on television, Legacy of Love tells the story of how Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott met, fell in love, and dreamed a new world together. Through exclusive interviews, Legacy of Love reveals how Boston helped set the stage for the iconic civil rights couple of our time. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, FC supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe and please leave a glowing review. And now on to my conversation with Roberto Mighty. Hello and welcome, Roberto Mighty. I love your name. Thank you. It was tough growing up with it, though. Actually, my full name is Roberto Manuel Martinez Mighty. And uh, try saying that in a third grade homeroom, you know, it's... <laughs> Without somebody taking exception to it. You know? Were you referred to by your full name at home? Yeah, actually just, you know, Roberto or, you know, or Roberto or Roberto, you know, depending on who it was that was, uh, you know, talking in the old neighborhood. When I was preparing for our conversation and getting familiar with all of your work, I mean, the, the phrase that kept leaping out at me was Renaissance man. <laughs> I mean, let, let me see if I miss anything. You are a a writer, a director, a producer, you're a cameraman, you're an editor, you're a musician, you're a still photographer. That's pretty good. That that about sums it up. And that uh, that is that that's remarkable. Well, I'm eternally confused, I think, Michael. That's <laughs> well, you could look at it that way, I guess. <laughs> just can't make a decision, man. That's it. Just... <laughs> I think the decision's been made. I think that <laughs> I think the box that you check is all of the above. <laughs> when when somebody asks you, "What do you do?" Um, but you you so you had mentioned um, uh, just a couple minutes ago uh, about growing up. Where did you grow up? 
So uh, my dad was in the Air Force. So I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska and Queens, New York, which geographically are about as far apart as possible. Yeah. You know, um, culturally, too. Culturally, too. That's right. Yeah. Um, but I, I swear I had a great, had a wonderful childhood. And a big part of that was the fact that, you know, we the family had moved around, you know, before I was born even. And so we were just always like a nice little unit, you know, that we were pretty close. And um, there's this idea that you'd go to a new place, you'd make friends, you'd check out you know, what was going on, and you'd make yourself part of what, whatever was happening. Which came first, Alaska or Queens? So Queens, but we left for Alaska when I was five years old. Okay. And, um, but then we came back to New York when I was nine. So it was a good four years. But it was the, it was the wonder years, you know, it was the... A very important time, I think, in a in a kid's life. Sure. And um, you know, my dad is from Panama. My mom's from Cincinnati. So that also played a big role in my growing up. Um, for one thing, I got to eat some very confusing dinners. You know. <laughs> yeah, eclectic. <laughs> We'd have like arroz con pollo and uh, beef stew. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Never, never a dull uh, a dull menu in, never the, in the mighty dull. household. That's pretty true. Yeah. And which of your artistic endeavors spoke to you first? Well, I don't know how artistic it was, but I started writing when I was really young. I mean, I don't know, maybe second grade, first grade, something like that. But there's a fun, uh, really quick fun story about that. I actually was, um, I didn't, I never attended kindergarten just for weird reasons, like my birthdays at the end of the year. And then, you know, I, you know, we had traveled, blah, 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 blah. So when I first started school, I was really way behind the other students. And um, my mom, you know, was informed about this. And her solution was to teach me at home. So um, she taught me to read phonetically. After that, uh, I was, you know, I was a, a really good student. And I, I'll actually, in all seriousness, I will never, this is really critical to how I think about life because um, I was actually a really bad you know, student. I mean, I was actually a cause of disrupting the classroom when I was very young. And then when I felt confident about, you know, being in school when after my mother had taught me at home and um, then I was a great student, you know, and I just really felt, gosh, darn it. You know, that's, there's something there that's to be remembered when we were thinking about education, you know, of. Uh, so did you think the, was the acting out sort of over, overcompensating for a lack of confidence in one area? I'm, sh I'm sure it was. Yeah. And um, later, many years later, I began to do volunteer work um, at, uh, at a prison. And um, I noted that the young men uh, that I met, um, men, you know, obviously from, I guess, age 21 up, many of them were illiterate. I mean, they really could not read. And um, it was pretty shocking and pardon my naivete, but uh, I was shocked. How could you be 21 years old and not be able to read? Well, the fact is there are millions of Americans who are, you know, who grow up being functionally illiterate. Right. You know, they can read signs, but you know, they, and so, yeah, you just nailed it. Michael, you said it, the acting out, you know, and school becomes a foreign dangerous environment where we're perhaps thought of as being less than or unable to, and with all sorts of consequences. So not blaming school so much is just the idea that someone has to identify that that kid has this problem, whether right. that's reading or dyslexia, whatever it is, and then solve that or address that issue. And then um, the rest can be golden.
Yeah, because I would imagine that in the instances of reading issues, what can tend to happen is that um, the inability to read kind of triggers shame. And yes. the, the shame displays itself through aggression. Yes. And, and you know, you get stuck in that pattern mm. for long enough and, you know, you're, you're heading down a particular path. Absolutely. And this early, early writing that you engaged in, uh, what did it, what purpose did it serve in, in, in terms of your relationship with the written word, either as a reader, as a writer, and then moving on as somebody who was, you know, moved to create, to create art and to tell stories? Um, wow, man, just a great question right there. Um, well, I grew up in a house full of books, you know, my parents were into it, you know, and, um, you know, we, we, when I was a kid, you were reading like fairy tales, of course, right? You know, and then my mom would read to me and my mom and dad, they were of that generation where they recited poetry around the house all the time. You know, it's, they just recited poetry. And a lot of people in that age group, born in the 1920s, did that. And so there was this, you know, I don't know, this lyrical, this idea that language was transformative, language was magical, language had all sorts of possibilities. And of course, you know, being in a bilingual household, right? So you get from the Spanish side, you get that incredible romanticism, you know, oh my God, you know, and from the uh, English American side, you get more of that, you know, let's get down to brass tacks. <laughs> <laughs> Pragmatism. <laughs> Pragmatism. There you go. Perfect. Perfect word. And I think that all had something to do with it. And um, so writing thing, words were absolute magic. You know, it's interesting dad, that, yeah. you, that you bring up that blend of the two because, you know, back to when I was taking a look at all that you've done, one of the, one of the um, qualities of your personality that would allow you to do all you've done is both your immersion in your artistic uh, ambitions, but also at the end of the day, it's about getting the work done, right? <laughs> it, it's booking the job, it's showing up for the job, it's meeting the deadline. It's a uh, hugely valuable combination. Well, I, again, just really fortunate. Uh, my dad was absolutely not gonna sit still for anything remotely resembling lazy. <laughs> you know, we had to get up and get out and get our chores done and all that stuff. And that had a big, uh, big influence on me. As you were growing up and uh, gravitating toward more artistic interests, say when you were in your teens, perhaps, or in your uh, early 20s, were you envisioning yourself as more of a, a filmmaker, more of a musician? Were you, were, you know, were you um, even bothered to be thinking along such um, finite lines? Uh, man, these are great questions. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. You know, um, growing up, I was definitely a musician. You know, um, I started playing the guitar when I was about 13, and uh, I thought it was a way to pick up, you know, girls, frankly. <laughs> I think I've heard that story once or twice. Yeah, you've heard that once or twice. Like from everybody who's ever picked up a guitar? <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> I was like the biggest nerd in my neighborhood. Girls wouldn't have anything to do with me at all. You know, I wore big glasses, you know, and I was really uh, geeky. I, we would use the term geek now. And um, anyway, um, yeah, it was really cool. Uh, the fact is I did like music. My mother um, is an amazing singer, beautiful voice. She sang around the house all the time. By the way, you know, my parents used to dance all the time around the house. So there's a whole African-American and Latin American thing of men and women dancing. And you didn't have to go out to a nightclub. They just wow. danced in the living room, you know, listening to music and on the stereo. And that was something else. The music was a big deal. 
and um, loved it. So I thought I might be a you know, famous guitar player like Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, nothing like that happened. But, um, and uh, so that was the first idea. Um, through that, I began to really get involved in uh, just things you could hear and um, storytelling. So storytelling through audio. So I became enamored of radio, radio theater when I was a little kid. Uh, I grew up well after the golden era of radio drama, but somehow I guess my parents got me uh, into it. And um, I wound up working uh, at, at a radio station, a public radio station in Brooklyn, WNYE, in their all-city radio workshop. And I was an actor, oh, <laughs> a excellent. radio theater actor when I was 16, yeah. I also did drama in, uh, in school, in uh, junior high school and high school. So yeah, if anything, maybe I guess an actor and a musician, those are my early thoughts. And when did filmmaking come into your world? Well, the first thing that happened was that as an actor, I met other kids who were really good at it. And I saw how horrible I was. As, <laughs> I was, I failed as an actor, you know, and um, filmmaking didn't start until, gosh, after college. Okay. Um, I saw a film, an English film um, called My Beautiful Laundrette. Oh, sure. Yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. Oh, man. Amazing. What an amazing yeah. actor. Amazing story. Um, and what struck me was how cheap it was. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't believe, like, you could see, like, the boom mic in some shots, you know. And, and I remember thinking, well, before that, movie making seemed really remote, abstract, and expensive. And by, by the time I saw that film, I, I thought, Wow. I could, I could do that. I mean, what, come on. Was that Jim Sheridan? Was he the director of that? You know, I'm trying to think it, what, I think it was Mike Lee, but it wasn't Mike Lee. You know, I forget who was the director. Yeah, but we'll, that director uh, went on to make I'm some hoping art. everybody hearing this is immediately Googling oh, it right now. Oh, yes, exactly. That's I'm right. putting yeah. my money on Jim Sheridan. We'll have to find yeah. out. <laughs> you're, you're probably right. And uh, I was struck by just great storytelling, all that. Daniel Day-Lewis' Daniel Day performance was out of this world as he was in my left foot, right? You know, and um, we're betraying our age here. And uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, that was the one that got me, that lit my fuse. I thought, wow, you know, this is possible. So you came away from that experience being, um, uh, being enthusiastic about the possibility of creating your own film uh, as, a, as a writer, a director? As a writer, director, you know, as an, well, as an independent filmmaker. Back then, I didn't see the two as different. I, I think I somehow thought that directors wrote their movies too. Yep, yep. You know, no, that's not always the case. So as I was reviewing your work, the, uh, the, you know, the phrase multimedia uh, mm. was just leaping out at me. And yeah. I think it's fascinating the way you have not contained your uh, creativity to sort of one medium. How did that come about? And when did you start to think you know, so broadly in the possibilities of how you could tell stories? So I started out with, imagine me in, in my dorm room in, in college, pushing everything in the dorm room aside and building a recording studio in my room. And um, one day, one of the older guys came along, older students and said, hey, um, if you have all this stuff in your room, you could make radio commercials, you could make money. I was like, Oh, <laughs> I'm all ears. So he, um, at that time, he was working for a local radio station, WBZ. He introduced me to some people at the station. And he said, oh, yeah, this kid is really talented. 
um, he can write music and he can produce commercials. And um, they got me hired to uh, do some jingles, you know, write some jingles and uh, write, write and produce some radio commercials. Was this WBZ in Boston? This is WBZ. That's right. In Boston. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I made so much money at once. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a rare thing that you hear coming from a documentary filmmaker. <laughs> exactly. Well, this was commercial work. That's why it was right, exactly. handsomely. And I thought, oh, oh man, I can totally get used to this. The other thing about it is that I had been doing radio theater, you know, for some time. Okay. And, um, you know, doing a 60 second radio commercial, it was like a joke. It was so quick and easy. Right. And all the radio theater stuff I'd done for either nothing or for peanuts. And so I thought, okay, this is really easy. And I'm getting paid stupid amounts of money to it. Yeah, sure. Sign me up. So that's how I got started. So that was, you know, combining writing, music and speaking, you know, speech, right? Mm -hmm. From there, um, I went, got into producing television commercials. So they had that other element of the visual. And was this still out of BZ or did you start your own company by then? Started my own company by then. Okay. And uh, my first TV commercials were for, on Channel 56. Sure, I remember um, that. There's, there's independent stations in Boston. Yeah. yeah. Channel 68. Um, I went from there to uh, creating television programs, half hour television shows. My first one happened to be about music, local musicians and all right. that, you know. Um, all this time I had been in bands. I was a band leader all through college, you know, a lead guitar player, um, meaning that that's code for play too loud. <laughs> <laughs> the guy with his amp at 10. The guy with his amp at 10, absolutely. <laughs> and um, yeah, I was writing uh, just for some time after I graduated from college, I spent about 10 years doing music, you know, writing music for radio and TV, writing commercials, writing and producing television shows. And uh, I was very fortunate in the business end of that, you know, and that helped me out later on. You've had a great track record with your films and series being run on PBS stations yes. uh, throughout the country. How did you establish that relationship? This is actually new. So probably about three years or so ago, I, I began to think about... Um, a project that I had been working on in my spare time about aging. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was going to, I was creating it as an interactive multimedia museum exhibit. Okay. And this is, you know, and then also I've been the first, actually America's first artist in residence at a, a national historic landmark cemetery at Mount Auburn cemetery in Cambridge. And there I produced um, 29 short films about the cemetery and dead people there. And also about, um, I created multimedia, a, a live multimedia experience, you know, for audiences. And who commissioned um, those? Yeah, so I was commissioned by, actually by the cemetery itself, but oh, I was funded by the National Trust for Historic Preservation um, and a variety of other foundations. Um, I'd done some work at Harvard, Harvard Forest, that had been um, commissioned by that organization, but had been funded by the National Science Foundation, um, we're sort of collapsing a lot of years here, but the bottom line is that by this point in my career, 2010, 2011, 2014, you know, I was known for creating film, video, audio, and musical experiences that could be experienced live and online. Mm -hmm. I got to say, you know, New England is fertile ground for this sort of, you know, multimedia approach. You know, there's 
you know, we have a lot of sciencey types around here. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, my, a lot of my projects are historical. A lot of them have to do with nature. Um, so all these things kind of came together and I was in many cases in the right place at the right time. I have two par- uh, grandparents who are buried in Mount Auburn. Is that uh, right? And yeah, I remember a little, my, um, my mom's mother lived for many, many years right off of Mount Auburn Street on Cushing Street in Cambridge, Mass. <laughs> and I can remember taking many walks uh-huh. through, through Mount Auburn. And it was just, I used to think that the, um, uh, what do they call them? Mausoleums? Like yes, mausoleums. Yep. Yeah, I used to think that those, when I was a little kid, I used to think those were castles. Yeah. <laughs> And I was going to go to this great park where all the, there were all these castles. And I couldn't understand the, the uh, you know, I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that this was also a place of solemnity. You know, right. I, I couldn't bring my bike. So I didn't really understand why. <laughs> you, know? you know, I got to say that I, uh, that project was, um, I had a commission for two years and I extended it for another year. I mean, I learned a lot there about the world of cemeteries. And um, you're so right that, the, there was this movement uh, of cemeteries around the uh, beginning of the 19th century around the world, around uh, the Western world, to make cemeteries not places where, you know, of sadness and spookiness, but to make them gar- literally gardens, you know, right. it was yeah. called the rural garden cemetery movement. Oh, so you had cemeteries popping up in France, in England. Um, around America, in America, all around the same time, early 19th century. So I became aware of all this during my uh, artist residency at Mount Auburn. And um, I felt there was more to it that I wanted to follow this up some more. So I created the idea of doing an, an, a television series about this the great cemeteries of the world. But I also wanted to include cemeteries in Africa, in Asia, in South Asia, mm-hmm. um, in the Caribbean, you know, so basically all over the world. Mm-hmm. And I was really fortunate that, I um, don't want to jump the gun here, but uh, at this point, well over 200 and something TV st- public television stations around the United States have signed up for, for my series, which will begin airing uh, nationwide in the fall. So, I'm very so that series on cemeteries has not aired yet. It has not aired yet. That's okay. right. So uh, also I, at the same time, I took this, project I was doing about aging, mm-hmm. also again, a multimedia project. I was doing that in my spare time on my own dime. And I thought, well, you know, this is my own concerns about aging um, are probably, you know, probably I'm not the only person in the world to wonder about what, what's going to happen as I get older, what's going to happen to my body, what's going to happen to my psyche. I'm thinking spending all those times in cemeteries might have Especially, some of this inquiry. I know you're that man, you're so perceptive. That's exactly right. You're so right. When you spend years in, in a cemetery you, and you read all these stories, you see the arc of people's entire lives, you know? Right. In my work at Harvard, I had worked, uh, it was all about people in the 17th century. Right. So, you know, you get to see not only their entire lives, but then also like what happened, right, you know, as a result of what they did or didn't do. So, um, yeah, I, was, I pitched both of these projects to a uh, public television distributor, I'm um, called American Public Television, and they accepted. I'm off and running in producing now. Yeah. So the the series on aging is called Getting Dot Older. Yes, it is. And where'd the, that title come from? So um, when I was uh, 50 years old, I I noticed something weird going on with my vision, and I went to my doctor, and she examined me. She said, kind of with a laugh, 
She said, ah, <laughs> nothing to worry about. You're just getting older. I was like, getting older? No, not me. Right, yeah, It's exactly. not happening to me. Yes. I'm going to so be the one that. who escapes that. Exactly. So, that, so at first I was calling this project Getting Older. But then I had this idea of, um, I mean, I'm one filmmaker, you know, and I'm a, as you, you know, I'm a cinematographer, so I like to shoot my own things. But I thought, well, you know, there's this thing called the internet, right? So what if I get people around the country to send me, you know, home videos of themselves, you know? Um, and what if I get that all done again through the web, right? So there was the dot, right? So getting dot, so the dot kind of signifies utilizing this. That there's a digital aspect to the project, exactly. sure. Yeah. yeah. I think it's really interesting to be delving into the whole topic of, of aging in America right now, particularly in the age of COVID, because when we look at the disproportionate number of, you know, COVID fatalities, th there's a strong correlation, obviously, to age. Um, and, right. you know, the perception of age. I've had many conversations with people, and these are anecdotal and speculative, but I've had many conversations with people where we've said, you know, I wonder if the age group that was succumbing to COVID was 10 or 15 years younger if people would, if there would still be almost this, I'm not going to say blasé, mm. but, you know, it's like people live their lives and sort of in the periphery, three, 4,000 people a day are dying from this. And I sometimes do wonder if there's a correlation between that and the way that Americans view people of a certain age. That's a great question. And I think it's perhaps rhetorical, you know, I mean, if I would certainly agree with your um, implication that we Americans think that older people are disposable. And by older, I mean senior. And by senior, I mean anyone older than me. No, just kidding. <laughs> by, by, by I like that one. I'm using it. <laughs> no, that's a, in all seriousness, it seems to me that my friends and I, who are in, in our 60s, 60s and 70s, you know, we, we were sort of like, the tone of the news reports was, 2,000 people died today, but heck, they were old, so what, you know, who cares, right? Didn't yeah. you feel that? Yeah. I felt it. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and I find that sort of fascinating because it's a, you know, there's this weird uh, perception sometimes that getting old is almost like a crime. Yeah. You, you know, like, first of all, everyone's going to do it. <laughs> the way I've always looked at it is you've got two options. You age or you die. So I'll take the former, <laughs> right? Because the latter is inevitable. Exactly. And, uh, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. But, you know, somebody will tell me, oh, I have a relative who's sick. I have a relative who just died. And my first question is, how old are they? Exactly. Because you want to delude yourself into thinking that, oh, that's way out there. Exactly. That's way out there. It's just a sort of this game that we play. Absolutely. And we also live in a society that just, you know, it venerates youth and vigor um, and equates it with, a, you know, greater social worth. A hundred percent. And, you know, people who, pardon me, people who are over 50 say, I mean, I've heard it a million times that they are discriminated against in many ways in employment, yeah. in um, heck, you know, in the grocery store, I mean, see, all sorts of ways, you know, um, in the course of creating this project, the Getting Older project, I have personally interviewed many, many people of, you know, many diverse people. 
And some, a few things keep coming up. Um, women over 50 often tell me that they have been rendered invisible. I've heard that, that word, you know, the, you know, I've heard it so many times. I'm not putting, I'm not making this up. You know, I, I've heard, I've just heard so many women say that, yeah, after I hit 50, I became invisible. And I'll say, well, what do you mean by that? And then they go on to explain, you know, that somehow their worth as a, as a female human being has somehow declined after a certain age or after the appearance of a certain age, let's put it that way. Men of a certain age, generally past 50, I think that men, we men often begin to feel it later because we are not so cruelly and unfairly judged by our appearance as women are in this society, right? So, um, but we often feel that, you know, people don't believe us. I mean, literally don't believe what we're saying has any merit, you know, um, believe that we're out of it, like we don't understand, oh, we can't understand the internet. It's, it's called a text, old man, you know, <laughs> get with it, you know. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, and that we are, you know, liable to be poor drivers, you know, that, you know, we've got bad vision, we have bad hearing, all sorts of things, some of which may be true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, that just because a person's vision isn't as uh, wonderful as it was at age 30 doesn't mean that they're necessarily a bad driver, actually. I did all of my bad driving in my 20s, I can assure you. <laughs> yeah. I'm a way better driver now. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I think it's the, um, sometimes it's a matter of semantics. You, you know, if you were to separate out the word old or aged with the word experienced, yeah, uh, you know, you 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 come away with uh, a much different perception, and I think that that works from you know uh, outside looking in, sort of the way society views the person who's aging, but also the way the person who's aging views themselves. I I I sort of feel like once you start thinking of yourselves yourself rather in terms of this kind of arbitrary chronological number, right? Then you're falling into that trap. I think that's a great point, Michael. I will say, however, that Dr. Andrew Weil, mm. um, who's you know, well-known uh, health guru, I remember reading something that he said years ago, and um, he said something like, all this talk of anti-aging is oddly not only missing the point, but setting us up for failure. Because in fact, as you pointed out, we're going to get older or we're not going to get older, right? <laughs> Most of us do age. As the late, great Warren Zevon said, life will kill you. Exactly. And if we spend so much time trying to be something that we're not, i.e. younger, we're missing out on the joys of being what we are. And again, I'm you know, heavily paraphrasing but what Dr. Andrew Weil said was something like, yeah, the fact is we do get older. And the fact is that we're, our reflexes aren't going to be as fast. You know, the, our vision might be different. Our hearing might be different. You know, we may not be able to run the mile in, you know, in four minutes like we used to. But there are all these other things we get. We get wisdom. You know, we get, you know, understanding. We get sensitivity, all this stuff. And my series is not a bunch of old people griping and grousing about aging. It's really people recounting deeply intimate details of their experience of aging. Mm-hmm. Everything ranging from relationships with um, younger people to, you know, intimate relationships with each other, you know, sexual relationships to um, financial issues to ways that they're confronting and dealing with their own prejudices. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that as someone born in 1954, I have a whole set of prejudices that I grew up with from the 1950s that I struggle 
to overcome. Mm-hmm. You know? And um, and thank goodness for, I have to say, for a lot of younger people, including my daughter, who have grown up in a world that accepts many things about people that I had to learn to accept. Yeah, yeah, there, there you go. There's evidence of some evolution right there, yes. which is heartening. So uh, what is the trajectory for the um, Getting Dot Older project? So the Getting Dot Older series will begin out um, airing uh, weekly, weekly 13 uh, half-hour episodes in late October. Okay. And by the way, at the same time as uh, the world's greatest cemeteries. <laughs> so again, I'm delivering. You're competing 20, against yourself. I'm competing against myself. And uh, I'm hosting both. Now, the audience may not have heard earlier when you and I were talking about what it's like to be on camera as opposed to being behind right. the camera. So for the most part, for my entire career, which is something like 40 something years now, I have been behind the camera. And now, um, for the first time on national television, <laughs> I will be seen, you know, hosting. I'm the host of both shows. I'm the producer and host. And I'm someone who, you know, I never thought I'd win a beauty contest. <laughs> but more importantly, um, something that you mentioned before the show started that many of us just have this idea that our greatest contributions are best not seen visually, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but the reason why I'm the host of these shows is, uh, you know, because it's my production company, I work cheap. That's one thing. (laughs) Well, I'm also going to say this is a podcast and we don't have a video component, but you're being, you're being very modest and self-deprecating. You are quite telegenic. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I'm just going to let listeners immediately go to your website for evidence of that. (laughs) Well, I definitely had to get over my shyness about being on camera. And frankly, I've worked with some incredible people on camera. I've, you know, produced and directed people like Liz Walker, Natalie Jacobson. Um, I've worked with a variety of other people um, who are incredible on camera. Um, And so I had to get overcome my shyness about, you know, (laughs) <laughs> yeah sure yeah are you typically working on one project at a time i mean it, it, it sounds like you, you've constantly got a lot of oars in the fire yeah the water it was the oars in the fire they're not going to be useful <laughs> <laughs> we knew what you meant yeah. so um yeah i usually have a bunch of oars in the water and i um you know my film about martin luther king and coretta scott king um, during this during this whole time I've been working on those TV shows, that film has been, you know, was I created it and you know directed and produced it, um, hosted by Reverend Liz Walker, and um, that film has been broadcast on WGBH. And it's, that film is called Legacy of Love. Legacy of Love, yeah, yeah, and that really interesting backstory. So let's talk a little bit about that. So um, a couple of years ago, an organization called King Boston. Um, came up with a number of great ideas. One of them was to create a new memorial to Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King on the Boston Common, which is, uh, you know, a town, like, like Central Park in New York, but in Boston. And um, so this is really a big deal. It's a multi-million dollar project and so forth. As part of the initiative about that, they thought, well, it might be nice to commission a film about Martin and Coretta's um, meeting, which mm-hmm. happened in Boston, which I hadn't known. 
So I, among several other filmmakers, threw my hat into the ring on that. And, um, you know, I got the commission. And the first thing I said was, um, you know, I'll do it if I can do exactly what I want. And, you know, they said, well, uh, <laughs> sure. You know, but actually they'd seen my work, you know, seen lots of my other stuff. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to show these two people, Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott, before they were married as graduate students in Boston, which is what they were. Remembering my own time as a college student in Boston when for the first time I fell in love, for the first time I was away from my parents, mm-hmm. my, from my father's rules, <laughs> you know, for an extended period of time. I thought I would liken their experience to that of any college student. That's one idea. But the other thing is I wanted to find out more about the, what we now call the, the nascent, the, the beginnings of what we now call the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And who better, right, you know, than, you know, to examine this or to see it through their lens. And so my film is really, again, it's about their meeting, about their romance, about them as two regular people, which is a joke. They were never regular ever in their lives. <laughs> and then why, what could we see early on in their letters, you know, in their public appearance? What could we see early on that would give us clues to the incredible greatness that would ensue? And in this film, you also, you use actors. Uh, there's, there's, there's a reenactment component, correct, of, of, yeah. of the film. What was, what was that experience like, uh, acting as a director of, uh, you know, this obviously isn't documentary. Well, so reenactment is becoming more and more of a thing in documentaries. You know, yeah. It gives a director a lot more latitude to illustrate something. I, I see it as kind of an illustration. So, you know, you can interview people, that's something that a lot of documentarians do and something I, I did in this film. You can, you know, have actors do voiceover of the letters. That's something else I did. But there's nothing like, you know, seeing, gosh, you know, just seeing human beings in period clothing, in a period automobile, you know, and um, with appropriate music, with kind of a soft focus lens, like literally a soft focus lens, just taking people to that time, you know, transporting right. their imaginations. And that part of this project was important. And by the way, in my cemeteries series, when I'm looking at the lives of dead people, um, people, you know, generally from the 19th century, every episode has a reenactment component as well. Yeah, I'm a big believer in this. I worked on a history series and then on a number of history projects myself and had always found that I don't know what what it is. There's got to be something in the you know, in our um, makeup as viewers, that when you take the story kind of off the page, or or in the case of uh, a documentary, when you move the story beyond moves on stills or right. voiceover around, you know, primary source material, and you reenactment, there's something about the viewer that says, oh, yeah, these were real people. They got up in the morning, and they had the challenges of the day. They weren't just sort of, you know, they didn't get up in the morning as a civil rights leader. Exactly. They, you know, they get up as a dad or a, or a student or, yeah. And then it, it, it's a, um, I think it's a wonderfully humanizing technique. Absolutely. And of course, the trick is the devil's in the details because um, I agree with you. It's a wonderfully humanizing technique, but you can also, you know, screw it up. Right. <laughs> you know, and so, and especially when the, when the subjects are so universally known, well known right. as these two. Um, there's a tremendous amount of pressure, you know, to get it right. Now, I will let viewers decide if I got it right, but 
I can tell you that I put every ounce of my being into that project, man. I really worked hard on it. I felt a tremendous debt to the civil rights movement, you know, myself. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that I can move so freely, literally about the world, I owe to that, that movement, you know, so I want to get a lot of things right. So at the, at the top of our conversation, when I was running through that uh, <laughs> very impressive list of, of areas of expertise that you have around writing, directing, shooting, editing, et cetera, one thing I left off was you're also an FAA certified drone pilot. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> When did that come to be and why and how? <laughs> well, you know, aerial cinematography, as we like to call it, is, uh, is a big deal now, right? You know, it's, it's always been a thing, but it wasn't until the availability of these relatively inexpensive, and by inexpensive, I mean under $5,000, right? Camera carrying you know, quadcopters that now more and more people can get into it, and especially filmmakers. So now you see these aerial shots everywhere. Yeah. So I did mention my dad was in the Air Force, and I grew up on an Air Force base. Yes, you did. Yeah. So there's a lot of aviation stuff in my background. So as a filmmaker, so when uh, does having that FAA certification, uh, does that allow you to do things that, you know, another filmmaker perhaps wouldn't be able to do? Anyone can buy a drone and take pictures with it. But you can, you're not allowed legally to charge money for that service or to benefit financially from that service unless and until you have an FAA certification. And what was that process? It's studying these are the arcane rules of, uh, (laughs) (laughs) by arcane, I mean really arcane. I get it. Of the air yeah. for you know a period in my case of months or some people can do it in a matter of weeks. I'm not that smart. I had to study it for a few months and then um, you take a test. You know the uh, Federal Aviation Administration administers the t- a test and you pass. Hopefully, <laughs> I did. You know, and now I'm a certified. I can put that thing up in the sky and hope it doesn't fall on anyone. That's all. Does it? Do, does the certification come with any pilot's wings that you can wear? I have little teeny tiny wings on a card. I would be wearing that every day. <laughs> the truth is that I, uh, I am looking forward to getting my private pilot's license. And that's something which I hope to do this, uh, well, this year, next year, let's put it that way. Yeah. Oh, you'll have to come up to uh, my part of the world. Uh, have you ever been out to Plum Island um, off I, of Newburyport? Yes, there, yes. There's, a, uh, there's an airfield out <gasps> there and, and it's just, it's beautiful. It's a... I, I've been to Plum Island. It's gorgeous. There's a wildlife sanctuary out there. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep. 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 So, you know, and I would love to fly out there. I'd love to. We'll, well Roberta, we're going to be keeping an eye out for uh, Getting Dot Older uh, and also the Cemetery Project. Thank you. Where can listeners go and discover more about you and your work? What's the best place that they should visit? Michael, so people can get to uh, robertomighty.com. So okay. it's myname.com. And that will lead to all these projects. And each project has its own separate website, too. And you can get all that from my robertomighty.com. Excellent. And um, as a, uh, obviously, Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative. On behalf of Filmmakers Collaborative, I want to thank you for participating and welcome you to the FC community as a member. We're always encouraging new members. Uh, So thank you so much for your time. This has been great. uh, And I look forward to uh, chatting with you again. My pleasure, Michael. You were fantastic. Thank you. All right. Take care.